Welcome to the Keep Idaho Red Radio Show, where you'll hear from national, statewide, and local Republican leaders about the issues that are most important to Idahoans today. Now, please welcome Tom Luna and Vic Miller. Welcome to Keep Idaho Red Radio. We're listening to KIDO 107.5 FM and 580 AM. I'm Victor Miller, and I'm joined with Tom Luna. And we are going to be uh, speaking to a very good friend of ours, and that is Wendy Horman. Wendy Horman is from District 32. She's in her sixth term. Most importantly, she is the chairman of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, and she represents the House side of that. And she's also in the Commercial and Human Resources Committee and also in the Environmental Energy and Technology Committee. That's a lot of work. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Keep Idaho Red Radio, Representative Wendy Horman. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. So, Wendy, if you don't mind, we're going to talk a little bit mostly today on your work in the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. So why don't we start with the biggest, broadest topic, which is let's talk about the budget itself this year the size of that budget, and the growth in that budget. So let's start there. Thanks, Victor. It's great to be here with you today. We are nearing the end of the session, and so we're starting to get some final numbers about what the overall picture looks like for revenues uh, up to the year as well as expenditures. So uh, where we are at now... During the COVID years, we had a lot of federal funding coming into the state, and the lines became blurred between the the fiscal years because there was uh, so much federal money passing through. And so we got into this habit of a lot of supplementals, a lot of carryover, and so our numbers became a little bit distorted. So what we tried to do this year, uh, along with co-chair, uh, Senator Scott Grow, who's an accountant, as you probably all know, was really start trying to clean up the lines between our fiscal years. So that meant moving budget requests that were supplemental in nature. People were asking for them in the current fiscal year rather than what normally happens is in the f- next fiscal year. And so uh, where we ended up, if is that the governor had proposed a a 5% budget increase. But if you count that money that came from the special session, that $330 million, it was really a 12.14% increase. And what JFAC did is add just a measly 0.12 to that. And so we're right in line with where the governor's budget was requested. But under the hood of that, there's a lot of, uh, well, not a lot of differences, but some differences that were putting money in the year where it was actually going to be spent. So let's talk a little bit about when you say let's go under the hood, but let's, let's finish some broad topics first. How many budget bills do you see in, the, in JFAC, and how many have already been voted on, and how many are left to be done? Right now, great question. There's about 130 budget bills moving through the system. 27 have been signed. 11 are already in the governor's office waiting for signature. 64 are at some point in the process, and 21 are still waiting for a bill number. You remember Schoolhouse Rock. They still don't have a bill number yet. So we there is a lot of work yet to do. Typically, the session is around 12 weeks, and a lot of that is driven by just how long it takes to set the budgets. This year, leadership was trying to get out in 11 weeks, but you can see by the number of budget bills, uh, and these aren't the ones that have been, uh, we've had two budget bills go down or be pulled back to committee, 
and or three, I guess. Uh, so that's not even counting for those. This is just the normal budget process. That's just how long it takes uh, our staff to get them to the floor and signed by the governor. We have a very lean staff, only 11 people. And when you're talking about spending, you know, $5 billion, $6 billion, that's, a, that's, that's uh, 11 staff. It's a lot of work. Our staff works very hard, as does the, the committee. I think we've only had... Uh, four days in the entire session where JFAC has not met. So it's a very hardworking committee. So let's talk about um, what is the what is the number of the revenue that you expect that's in the 2024 uh, fiscal budget, and what is the expenses that are, just so we have an idea of what that means. So right now we were looking at 5.7 in total revenues with what the legislature has acted on. And the appropriations are $5.1 billion. Uh, one of the changes that has happened from what the governor recommended, he recommended a very healthy $200 million carryover from 23 to 24 and 24 to 25. Some of the changes that the legislature made was to increase the size of that bottom line. We're having bank failures. We're having some again, troubling signs, and we essentially doubled that carryover to from 23 to 24 to $416 million. And then in uh, 24, we hope to end not with $220 million, but with 289 So one of our strategies was to have larger surplus, planned surpluses at the end of the 23 and 24 budget years than what had been recommended. Well, I know Tom's going to have some questions on Medicaid and education. Well, we should talk about those three bills that have been pulled. But when you say that the the governor saw $200 million in, a, in basically a surplus, and you've doubled that to $400 million, can you just tell the listeners how you're able to do that, and then Tom's going to do some very exact drilling. Sure. I'll use the Secretary of State's budget as an example. There was a request in there for $10 million of one-time funding to really focus on election integrity, upgrading our campaign finance, uh, technology systems. Well, when our members got into that budget and really examined that, they weren't really going to spend the $10 million before June 30th of 2023 when the budget year ends. And so rather than giving that to them in the current budget year, the the uh, representative working that budget moved it into the correct fiscal year where it was expended. And, Wendy, help, uh, help the... Um listeners understand that that's this that's the purpose of supplementals is uh we're in the middle of the year basically and they've realized that they have expenses that are going to happen this year and so they come to uh, for a supplemental because they didn't ask for it last budget session right Mm -hmm. um and what you're saying is it didn't meet the definition or the requirement of supplemental Correct. I'll give you one example that is uh, a real emergency. The Historical Society found out they were going to have a rent increase after they submitted their budget in September. So they had to come because they needed to pay their rent starting in this fiscal year. That's an easy supplemental to grant. Supplementals that really aren't going to be spent in the current year don't qualify as an emergency under our constitutional rules and really should be appropriated in the year where they're going to be 
be spent. Got it. So, um, folks, we're going to uh, be back in a moment. We're visiting with uh, Representative Wendy Horman, who is the co-chair of the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee, a big committee, an important committee. In fact, their work has to be done or their legislature does not go home because we have a balanced budget amend, uh, uh, requirement, right? That is correct. And, of and all the things we have to do here, the budget is the only one we have to do before right. we go home. So until your committee's work's done, the legislature's here. And so we're going to come back and visit more uh, with, with Wendy Horman uh, about um, where we're at in the legislature and talk specifically about a couple of these budgets. So folks, we'll be right back. And welcome back to Keep Idaho Red Radio with Tom Loon and Vic Miller here on KIDO 580 107.5 on the FM dial and KLIX in the uh, Magic Valley. And we're visiting with Representative Wendy Horman. We've been talking all about money, but what's important, Wendy, it's the people who are listening. It's their money we're talking about, right? Amen. This is where it comes from. I remember one time somebody asking me where I thought the government got the money for a program or where they got the money for this program. I said they got it from the government. And he said, where do you think the government gets their money? And I was like 18 years old, getting ready to vote for the first time. I was like, huh, no one ever explained that to me, right? But it was my money, and it's your money, and it's the people's money, so... It is the people's money, and, yeah. and I wear a widow's mite necklace uh, regularly to remind me of the fact that some people make tremendous sacrifices That's right. to pay their taxes and keep the government functioning. And so I'm always weighing the value of that dollar in state government versus the value of leaving that dollar in the owner's pocket. Perfect. I like that. So let's talk about a couple of the bigger budgets that tend to get a lot of attention, and one of those is always public education. It is the largest, I think it's still the largest, we'll talk about Medicaid a little bit later, but uh, but I believe it's the largest uh, portion of the state budget goes to education. So talk about the high-end numbers for uh, public education, and then let's talk about some of the specific programs that are going to hopefully bring some improvements and changes uh, and modernization to our education system. I think you could easily describe the uh the public school budget this year as a property tax reduction budget. We did have a a property tax relief bill move forward, but I think this year the public school budget qualifies as a uh, property tax relief bill. It's historic in its amounts and in its percentage increase. So a 16.4% increase in public schools, $380 million new funding right directly in for teacher salaries, classified staff salaries, bus drivers, librarians, those sorts, as well as discretionary funding. So it's, it's really a and historic amount in public schools. And I, I hope that folks, uh, citizens see this and school districts see this and cut back on their levies. So let's talk specifically about that. This is as much in response to um, the needs of education, but also what you're, you're hearing from voters. Their property taxes are too high. The biggest portion of a pro- person's property tax comes from the local school district. And the school district saying that they have these levy, levies and supplementals because the funding from the state is inadequate. You've responded to that. We have responded to that in spades. If last year we passed a bill where districts used to have to dis, not have to disclose why they were levying, we passed a bill that said they have to now. So if you go back and look at what they put on those, it was oftentimes 
salaries for teachers and for classified staff. And so right now we have about $215 million out there in supplemental levies. A budget of 370 well, $380 million essentially says we'll match your $215 million and we'll raise you $165 million. And so really school districts, I hope, will be looking at those things they used to have to levy for, they're not going to need to levy for anymore. So you and I are former school board members. Yes. How important is it for, for citizens and patrons and parents to go to school board meetings and ask the question that you just posed, right? The legislature has put historical amounts of funding into education to answer the issue of the need for levies and supplementals. Those questions need to be asked at school boards when they're setting their budgets. That's correct. 11 years I spent on the Bonneville School Board, and that, that's exactly right. We, we're seeing a uh, 20% increase in discretionary funding, meaning we're just giving them 20% more money to spend on whatever their needs are. The ca- career ladder, I believe, was a 16% 16% increase in teacher salaries, 11% increase in health insurance training. So, again, the things people have been levying for are now being covered by the state. Okay. There's also some other things in there that are specific to improving some of the focus in education, like in career education. So talk about some of those things that are also in there that are going to expand opportunities, if you will, for parents and, and for children. That's a great point. In addition to what's in the public school budget, there is another $200 million outside of the public school budget. So we're approaching $600 million. Some of that is one-time funding, but some of it is ongoing. So, for example, a 20 million dollar request for school safety upgrades, uh, CTE bill with a 50, 50 million dollar uh, price tag that will uh, enable a lot more shop classes and, and career technical courses in our K-12 system, a charter school revolving loan fund. We know that charter schools do not have access to bonds and levies. To build their facilities. To build their facilities. Them. Yeah. And so this is a revolving loan fund that they can borrow out of, but then we'll replenish it. I wish we were doing something like that with public schools, but that didn't happen this year. You've got a $61 million price tag in in the property tax relief bill that's going to go directly to public schools uh, for... Uh, property tax relief so they don't have to levy. So uh, all told, we're, we're very close to $600 million this year just for K-12. Well, there's a lot more to learn about that, and we'll see how that plays out and have conversations about it. Let's shift real quick to Medicaid. It's a growing and growing concern. Some of us, a number of years ago, raised these concerns with the commitments that were being made to federal programs that would eventually require more and more state dollars. So talk about Medicaid and, and the budget and, and the current, um, uh, where it currently is in the, in the process of, of being approved. So that was a budget that went down last week. It was a 16% increase, and yet we know there's about 150,000 uh, Idahoans that are on Medicaid that are no longer eligible but were not able to be removed due to the federal public health emergency. And yet we were still seeing a 16% increase. That didn't go over very well with some members of the House, and that budget was voted down. So we brought it back to committee, received some current numbers from the Department of Health and Welfare of approximately 24,000 people they've inquired with about their eligibility 
about 13,800 are actually no longer eligible to receive Medicaid benefits. So we brought the budget back to committee and adjusted it down for at least that number of people who will no longer be on the Medicaid rolls. Now, there is a claims delay. We've, we've all dealt with hospital bills and sure, doctor bills. Sure. So, right, there's a claims delay. We can't immediately remove everyone, but we know at this point today that at least 13,800 are ineligible. The budget has been adjusted to reflect for that reality. That, that's a process we go through, right? If the House wouldn't have leaned in, there wouldn't have been this uh, another set of eyes put on this expense and, uh, and the savings that you, just, um, that you just described would not have happened. So this process can be a little clumsy sometimes, frustrating definitely, but these are the end results when, when you have multiple eyes and multiple um, uh, thoughts put into the, it, it, into the conversation. Correct. And this budget hearing was held way back in January. And so we didn't have any numbers at that point. We just had estimates. Now we have actual numbers. And so it, it's a better budget coming back to the floor. We'll see if the floor agrees with us. If they don't, we'll try again. All right. Well, uh, Representative Horman, uh, we're going to wrap this up, but we're going to have you back. Um, 15, 30 seconds. When do you think you're going home and what's the going home bill, if you will? The going home date was supposed to be March 24th, but again, when you schedule an 11-week session, that's just really tight for just a standard budget process, let alone when budgets don't pass. And so uh, the House has a pretty clean calendar right now. We only have, uh, I think it was about a dozen bills left on our calendar yesterday. I've heard that the Senate has over 100 bills. So I think we're looking at at least another week. All right. Well, as soon as this all wraps up, We've gone through the process of the governor signing bills and stuff. We'll have you back on and just do an actual review of where we ended up with surpluses and how different agencies were funded and the impact it's going to have on everyday Idahoans. So, Representative Wendy Horman, we appreciate you always making yourself available to be on Keep Idaho Red Radio, and we appreciate the service you do not only to your district but to the state of Idaho. Thanks, Tom. It's been great to be with you both. Great, and folks, we'll be right back.